on a beautiful day like this morning, it's hard to believe that summer is actually drawing to a close. Uh, it's hard to believe school's about to start for us up here. And many places, school has already started. If you go across the state line, they're in school last week. And uh, south of Charlotte, they're in school. And we've got two weeks left before school starts here. And uh, whether you're excited or not depends on... Uh, uh, whether you like school, whether you're excited about going back to school. I was always one of those weird kids that uh, looked forward to school. I was excited about going to school. I uh, couldn't wait for the first day to get there. I was one of those kids that when they gave you the reading list, I'd already read all my books before I ever got there because I was so excited. And that held true all the way uh, through elementary. I loved school. Junior high, I loved it until I got into eighth grade. In eighth grade, I came across what I call my nemesis, what I call the ultimate evil, and that is uh, algebra. Amen? <laughs> now, um, I don't know if, if you've struggled with algebra, uh, but algebra, I just couldn't get it. I just could not wrap my head around algebra. I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't, couldn't make it work. Uh, every other course, I did great. My memory was wonderful, and in algebra, I would try to memorize, and I would try to work out problems, but it didn't matter. Eighth grade, high school, college, algebra killed me. First C I ever got, eighth grade algebra. Uh, devastated. I'm still devastated. I don't know if you can tell. I don't know how you did in algebra. I'm sure there's some of you that were like that because it seems to be a, a brain thing. Either you got it or you don't have it. And I know there's some algebra teachers here and some math teachers. Bless you, um, you know, and, and I don't bode you any ill will. But I will tell you that uh, there was a long time that I had a dream that I was calling my algebra teachers and getting them on the phone and saying, listen, I just wanted to tell you it's been 25 years and I still haven't used algebra. Amen. <laughs> 30 years, I still hadn't used algebra. And while I had them on the phone, then I wanted to remind them of the math teacher's favorite saying. You know, all math teachers growing up, you, you know what they always told you when you asked, why do we have to learn this? Because when you grow up, you're not going to carry a calculator around in your pocket. Well, I wanted to remind them, yes, I have a calculator now. I carry around everywhere. Amen? Algebra was just difficult for me. And one of the things that was hard to understand is that my friends that could do algebra, that were great at algebra, they struggled in English. They struggled in grammar. If you could do algebra, then you had problems in English or grammar. And I loved English and grammar. Grammar was one of my favorite things to study. Uh, you can probably tell if you've been here for any length of time, because I like to talk about uh, parsing Greek verbs and the tenses of the Greek verbs, because I believe grammar helps us understand the language so much better. And it helped me when I got into foreign languages, when I got into Greek and Latin and Spanish, to be able to do those things. I tell you that because the only reason I made it through high school algebra 2 was because a girl in my class could not diagram sentences and I made a deal with her I will help you diagram sentences you help me with algebra because I love diagramming sentences and so uh, we would get together and I would show her how to diagram the sentence and I'd get all excited and she'd just blah 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 and then she'd tell me about algebra and I'd look at it and it would mean nothing to me it looked like a foreign language and I just kind of wrote down what she was saying and going along but the only reason that I made it through high school algebra was because of grammar. Grammar was important to me. Glad to say today, unlike algebra, I use grammar. So 
You can take that for what you will. But many people struggle with grammar. As we talk about grammar and, and mentioning grammar, I saw some of your frown on your face. I had a friend that used to always say that diagramming sentences is what they made the bad people in hell do. So, uh, and I don't know about that. I think maybe after you get through with your algebra problems, then you have to diagram sentences. Um, but one thing I do know is that it seems that we have a grammar problem in the church today. And some of us probably even exhibited that grammar problem when we came in this morning. You see, I think there's been some confusion between what is a noun and what is a verb. And so since we're about to start school and we've been out all summer, let me just give you a quick grammar lesson between the two. A noun is a part of a speech that denotes a person, place, thing, or idea. A verb or verbs are words that show action, occurrences, or state of being. And why I think we have a problem with grammar in the church is because many times when it comes to us thinking about worship, when we use the term worship, we use it as a noun. Think about some of the ways that we have used it, maybe even this morning. We say, I'm going to worship. And when we say, I'm going to worship, we mean it as in going to a place. We call this place the worship center. Nowhere in the Bible is that term used. We call it a place. You never will find it in the New Testament, anywhere written, where we are called to go to worship. Because the Bible doesn't teach that we are supposed to go to a place and worship. Instead, the Bible teaches that worship is a verb requiring action. Requires participation, requires engagement, requires us being involved. And as I said earlier, even when we do think of worship in the terms of a verb, we think about it in the term of the first 20 minutes of the service. We think about the singing. That's worship. The praying. That's worship. But in reality, the Bible teaches that worship is so much more. That's an aspect of worship, but that is not worship. And last week, as we started our verse in Romans chapter 12, 1, we began to understand a little bit about what worship means. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn there. Romans chapter 12, there's a passage, I think, in your order of service you can follow along. But I'd love for you, uh, as we go through this series, to read along in your Bible, to make notes, to read ahead. We're going to be going through chapter 12 for the next couple of weeks. Read ahead every day. Read Romans chapter 12. I think it'll help unlock some of this truth. And if you weren't here last week, you missed the introduction, you can go and listen on the podcast and catch up. But I'm going to review a little bit, but not as in-depth as we did last week to start this verse. Because what we're going to do is really focus at the end of Romans chapter 12, 1. And I believe there's some truth there about worship that maybe changed the way of our thinking when we come to this place together, together. So let's read. And I'll explain as we go along. Therefore, as we found out last week, all Always, therefore, is alluding back to what he talked about before. He's talking about the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. He's saying, in light of all that's been said, and Romans is an incredible book of doctrine. It holds some of the greatest truths that the Bible holds. It's explained in an incredible way in the book of Romans. And so Paul's been teaching all this truth, but now he comes to a place where he moves from teaching to practical. And Paul believed that our our behavior should always follow after our beliefs. That if we believe something, if we really hold something to be true, then it's going to come out in our behavior. Then it's always going to be a part of our lifestyle. And so when he says, therefore, he is bridging the gap between doctrine now towards application. And so he is moving between the two things. He says, therefore, because of all that, I urge you brothers. Now the word there, brothers, is an indication he's talking to Christians. He's talking to those who have already given their life to Jesus Christ. So what he's about to urge us to do is something that is apart 
from you giving your life to Jesus Christ to become a Christian. He's talking about something that is different from that original salvation experience. And he says urge because he's not commanding us. He's not forcing us to do this. He's not saying you have to do this. It is a choice. What he is about to urge us to do is a very important choice for every believer. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, that can be in light of. And here he gives us the motivation for why he's urging us. He's urging us because of what God has done for us in the past. And I told you last week that that word mercy there is plural, mercies. So he's talking about all the mercy that you and I have received through life, all of the things that God has done for us. And he just went through a list, and we talked some last week about it, of all the ways that God showed you and I mercy. You remember by definition, justice is getting what we deserve. Grace is receiving something we don't deserve. Mercy is not receiving what we deserve. And so what he's saying is, in light of all the things that we deserve that God held back, I'm urging you to do something. What is he urging us to do? To offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Now that word offer is another indication that it is a voluntary thing. He is saying, I urge you, I encourage you, because of all that God's done for you, offer your bodies. And the word bodies in the New Testament always means everything. It doesn't mean literal bodies, your hands and feet. Uh, it, It means everything. He's saying, I urge you, I beseech, is what the King James Version says, for you as a believer in Christ to give everything that you are, everything that you have, everything that you hope to become, give it to God. All of your dreams, all of your hopes, all of your thoughts, all of your actions, everything that you encompass that defines you, he says, I urge you to give it to God, to offer it as a sacrifice. Now, in the Old Testament, they offered sacrifices for forgiveness of sin. In the Old Testament, they offered sacrifices as a means to have a relationship to God. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ became the ultimate sacrifice. So we no longer have to physically die for our sins. We now, because of Jesus defeating death, we now move into resurrection. But what he's saying is we need to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. Living, indicating that when we go and offer our bodies, we remain living, not dying, and we live in such a way that is holy and pleasing to God. And it all ties together. You see, everything that I do after I offer my body to God, now I do according to being holy. And holy means being set apart, removing sin, getting things out of my life that God doesn't like, and asking myself, does this please God? So Paul lays out this picture of what he believes is so vital for every Christian to do. That you and I are to make a conscious decision in light of all that God's done, in light of God's mercy, in light of God's grace, in light of who God is, to make a decision to give yourself completely, wholly, and freely to God as a sacrifice. And then live according to that sacrifice. Live in light of being set apart and pleasing unto God. Now this last part is what ties it all together, and that's what incorporates worship. Just a short part there in the sentence. This is where I want us to zero in. He says, do all that... Because this is your spiritual act of worship. Now the King James Version, instead of spiritual, says reasonable. Uh, And that's closer to what it means in the Greek. It's it's the word we get for logical. He's saying it's your logical act. 
He's saying when you think of all the things that God has done for you, when you, you think, like, like what Teresa sang a moment ago, when you think of how much He saved you, how much He redeemed you, then the only logical response for someone who is a Christian, for someone who says they love Jesus Christ, is to give everything you have to God. The only logical thing you can do is to choose that God is all yours. Take all of me. And when you do that, it becomes worship. You see, worship is defined simply as showing something worth. It is giving something the worth that it is due. And in worship, we are giving God what He is due. How do we do that? By offering our bodies as living sacrifice. Now, you understand in here, everybody worships something. When back when we were studying the Sermon on the Mount and we were reading through things, it became obvious in, in, in Matthew chapter 7 that it's easy to discover what we worship. All you have to do is follow the trail of where we invest our time, talent, and treasure. Because the Bible's clear that where we invest our time, talent, and treasure, that's what we worship. That's the most important thing in our life. And so you can weigh everything in your life and see where do you spend the most time, where do you give most of your talent to, and where do you put most of your money, your treasure at. That's what you worship. And what Paul is saying, the way to combat all of the other things that try to steal our time, talent, and treasure, try to steal our worship, all of those things that, that we have made idols in our life, the way to combat that is to simply put yourself on the altar of God and say, God, it's all yours. You see, Paul is telling us that worship is not a place, it's not a thing, it's an action. And the word act, uh, give your bodies a living sacrifice, that word it describes a one-time decision that is ongoing. So what that means is, I worship God by giving God everything that I have. That is the foundation of every other type of worship. Everything else we do that we call worship is based on that one act. And everything else flows out of that. But in doing that one act, I don't just do it once. I continually do it. I continually do it day in and day out. Every morning I wake up and say, God, here I am. It's yours. God, my plans for the day, they're yours. My plans for tonight, they're yours. God, the things that I want to come out of my lips, I want them to be holy and pleasing unto God. The things that I allow into my ears, the things that I allow into my eyes, I want them to be holy and pleasing unto God. The things that I do as I walk my day, the people I encounter, I want to be a living sacrifice for Christ so that when people come in contact with me, they recognize what I did on that altar that I am not my own, that I gave myself to Jesus Christ. You see, worship is so much more than just singing or giving or serving. Those things we use to describe worship, those are part of worship, but all of those things are based on our sacrifice. You see, if those things, if we do those things apart from giving of ourselves, they're just religious acts, just routine. And you can come and you can sing and you can give and you can serve or teach or, or do whatever it is in the church. But if it is not based on a foundation of you saying, God, take it all, then it is just going to become routine to you. And over time, it just becomes a joyless circle. You just come and you get, you know, people always ask, and, and I don't talk about giving a whole lot. People always ask, you know, God says, the Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. 
how in the world can you be a cheerful giver? Most people, if you look in church, you stand up here and you see people writing a check, then I don't come to church because people, they always talk about money. And we don't talk about money. Jesus talked about money more than he talked about grace. You know that? But I'm not going to get into a money sermon. But do you know why we're not cheerful givers? Because our giving is not an overflow of our sacrifice. You know why we have a problem in singing? Why, why we, words come up and they talk about God's glory and God's greatness and giving everything to Him and we sit there and our lips are closed because it all relates back to what we put on the altar. You know how we can see people in need all around us and in our week and our communities and people that have needs and hurts and we don't go and reach those needs and we don't have a heart for those? It all goes back to our sacrifice. You see what Jesus is saying, what Paul is trying to explain is that when you and I say, I have a desire to worship, what that means is I have a desire to offer myself to God wholly and completely. That's what Jesus was talking about to the Samaritan woman, that spirit in truth. He was saying, listen, you may worship this way and your group worships this way, but guess what? There's coming a new way, and that way is going to include and be based on you giving yourself to me totally and completely. You see, everything that we do relates to the extent of our sacrifice. If you don't give God everything, if you don't give Him all of you, it shows in those avenues and those areas of worship. It shows in your singing. It shows in your serving. It shows in your giving. I remember when I was in youth ministry and student ministry, I began to notice that youth camps or revivals, students would come down and you'd ask them, you know, they'd be real emotional. You'd ask them, why are you coming down? Why are you here? And they'd say, well, I want to rededicate my life. And I thought, rededicate? Rededicate's not a biblical term. Where do we come up with rededicate? You see, the problem was When they originally made a decision, they were only dedicating. They were only making an involved decision. They weren't offering a sacrifice. See, God doesn't want your dedication. God doesn't want your decision. God doesn't want your involvement. God wants your sacrifice. We compartmentalize our lives into little areas. And, and I've heard people say this, well, you know, I, I, this is what I believe, but I can't do it at work and I can't live it out in, at home. And, I can't. and so we compartmentalize. We say, this is what I'm going to give God and it's in this little box. And everything else is, you know, God's there because I'm there and he's inside of me. But I really can't do anything for God. And God says, no, that's not a sacrifice. That's not offering me yourself. And you see, what happens is, then we sit in church and we hear a pastor preach a message about giving yourself to God and the Holy Spirit begins to hammer us. And we tell ourselves, oh, but I walked down an aisle and I filled out a card and I got baptized. He's not talking about that. He's talking about after that. He's talking about you willingly saying, God, I'm your child. You have saved me, not because of anything that I was going to do, not because of anything in worth in me. You saved me. And my response to that salvation, because I didn't deserve it, because of your mercy, my response is to say, God, take it all. But when we don't say, God, take it all, we say, God, take what I'm thinking about right now. And we go out and we live our lives, and all of a sudden we come back to church and we get convicted, and and the Holy Spirit's whispering in our ear. And so we take that conviction somehow to mean that we've got to rededicate And so what we do is we go back up and whatever it is we were convicted, we lay it on the altar and say, God, here's a little bit more. 
And God hears a little bit more. And God hears a little bit more. And we do that week in and week out and year in and year out. And you say, well, if that's the way everybody lives, what's wrong with that? Because it messes up your obedience and your worship. You never experience the power of God in everything that you do if you're not willing to offer Him everything. See, some of you, you catch glimpses in your worship. You catch glimpses in your giving. You catch glimpses in your serving. But you never see it all. I have people that come and say, listen, I've read this New Testament from front to back, and, and I don't see these things that Jesus says are supposed to happen happening in the church today. You know why? It's because we have not offered ourselves as a sacrifice to God. We offer little bits and pieces. Reminds me of the story of the pig and the chicken that were arguing over who was more important to breakfast. You've probably heard the story. The chicken holding his egg said, listen, I'm very important. I'm very involved in the breakfast. The pig who had to offer his bacon said, no, I'm committed. You're involved. <laughs> because for the pig to be in part of breakfast, it required a sacrifice. You see, God's not looking for you to be dedicated. He's not looking for you to be involved. God is looking for a sacrifice. And it all starts when we worship God by giving Him everything. He says that when we give Him everything, the motivation for doing that, what gets us to that place? And this, this is key to why some of you haven't offered everything to God. He says the reason that we offer everything to God is in view of His mercy. And I want you to hear this. Our level of sacrifice, our level of worship is always related to how much we understand, how much we comprehend what God's done for us. You see, many times what gets us to that altar of God is guilt or condemnation or legalism or thinking this is what everybody else is supposed to do or peer pressure. And you see, when you're motivated to do something to, for God out of those things, it never lasts. Listen, I know I'm a pretty good communicator, and I can probably get up here and make everybody in this room feel guilty and write a check to God. I can do it. I can make you feel good. I can give you some illustrations. I can make you cry, and I can make you emotional. And I can ask you to write a check and give some money to God. And we'd probably have a great offering. And it wouldn't last because next week we'd be right back where we were. Why? Because you were motivated out of guilt. You were coerced to doing it. I can stand up here and I can say, look, there's hungry people and there's hurting people in this community that we've got to get outside of the walls and I can make you feel bad about it and, and, and make you feel guilty about it and we can all sign up and go do something. But then what happens is the next week, half the people sign up and the next week, a quarter of the people sign up. And the last week, it's just a couple of people. Why? Because when you do things for God, out of those motivations, it never lasts. It can't be maintained. You've got to have more guilt. You've got to have more peer pressure. You've got to have more uh, push from somebody. But when you are motivated by what God has done for you, when you are motivated by the mercy of God, do you know what re-motivates re you? All it takes is a song. All it takes is thinking about God. All it takes is focusing on God and recognizing I don't deserve anything. I am who I am totally and completely because of His grace and mercy. He loves me. God, the creator of this universe, loves me. And instead of giving me what I deserve, and I deserved hell, and I deserved separation from God, 
He gave me mercy, and He loved me, and He gave me grace, and He gave me His own Son to assure that I could experience heaven. When I begin to sing, when I begin to read, when I begin to think of those things, I can't help. My logical response is to say, God, here I am. God put me on the altar. That's what Teresa was singing about. In Luke 7, that story, Jesus is eating with the Pharisees. And as they're eating, this woman that many people think was a prostitute comes in. She'd fallen on tough times. and She wasn't even allowed. Women couldn't even be interacting with men at that point in a meal. And so that was her first step. That drew everybody's attention. This woman comes in, and, and, and instead of addressing anybody, she immediately goes to Jesus, who's sitting there. You know, they sit on the floor, and he's sitting there getting ready to eat. And she falls at his feet and begins to weep and grabs her hair and begins to wash his feet with her hair and then she takes this box this alabaster box and that contained perfume oil and you need to understand that for jewish women that was probably the most precious thing she had many jewish women received those type of boxes and that type of perfume as part of their dowry as part of their marriage agreement and it was something they passed down from family member to family member and she takes this thing that was the most precious thing she had and she breaks it open and begins to pour out this oil on Jesus' feet. And she's washing his, hair, his feet with her hair and she's crying. And the Pharisees, they step back and say, what, what's going on? You shouldn't allow that woman to do this. And Jesus says, let me tell you a little story. And he tells them a little parable. He says, there are two men that owe money to another person. One has a great debt, one has a small debt. And the person they're in debt to comes and he clears their debt. He said, let me ask you, who would be most appreciative? The one who had little debt or the one who had great debt? The Pharisee said, oh yeah, the one who had great debt would be more appreciated. And Jesus looked at him and he said, and that's your problem. You don't realize how much debt you have. He said, this woman, she recognized how much debt had been wiped out. How much she owed that had been cleared, and it motivated, it drew her to her only response. And what was that? A living sacrifice. God, take everything that I have. Take the most important thing in my life. God, take it all. You see, that is what motivates us to offer ourselves this morning. When we can catch a glimpse of all that God's done for us, when we begin to see what He's done for us, it changes everything. And sacrifice becomes a part of our lives. It, it, it's not even a sacrifice anymore. It's a part of my life. It's a lifestyle. The great reformer John Calvin said this, We will never worship God with a sincere heart or be roused to fear and obey with sufficient zeal until we properly understand how much we are indebted to God's mercy. You see, if you and I for just a moment could grasp all that God's done for you, you wouldn't hesitate to give Him everything. You wouldn't hesitate to say, I'm not holding anything back. Whatever it is that you've decided, you know better than he does. You'd say, God, take it. God, take it. And in that moment, worship happens. See, let me, let me explain a little better. Mercy is what gets me to the altar. The Holy Spirit and grace is what gets me off the altar. And everything I do once I'm off the altar is worship. Everything I do is worship, and, and it reflects God. It is holy and pleasing unto Him. But everything that I do in the power and I, that I do it in is all related to what I brought to the altar. 
So if I only brought today to the altar, then I'm not going to experience the fullness and the joy and the peace and the power that God has for me. It's not that he's holding it back, it's that you're holding it back. Because you see, it's in giving that you receive. And that's really the whole key of the passage. If, if you don't get anything else, this is the most important thing I want you to grasp. That the true measure of receiving from God is through giving to God. It's all throughout the New Testament. And see, the problem we have in church is so many of us come to receive. What can I get out of church? You ever heard anybody say, I didn't get anything this morning? Or you weren't meant to get anything. Give. Because it's all based. You see, I don't sing because I like the songs. I don't sing because, because I have a beautiful voice, which I don't. I sing because that is the only logical response to all that God's done for me. And when I sacrifice myself on the altar, I can't help but let everything that gives Him glory come out of me. It's in giving that I receive. Because you see, as I'm walking and living out this life, holy and pleasing unto God, and I'm serving and I'm giving of myself, God is giving me in return everything that I need. All my needs are met in my giving. You see, when you give of yourself, ultimately you'll receive back from God. And the focus of a living sacrifice, when you get off that altar, is always asking this question. What can I give? What can I give? That is the response of a living sacrifice. So what does that mean for us? How does that change anything for us? Well, as I get ready to close, let me just give you a couple of ways. First of all, personally, how does that change me? First of all, it means you need to ask yourself, have I made the decision to give everything I have to God? Have I taken my hands off of it? Have I left myself on the altar? Have I said, God, take it all? And I, listen, I remember my own life. There were times, even after I surrendered to ministry, um, I, I gave God, I, every time the Holy Spirit would bring something to mind. Because see, usually what we do is when we say, I give you everything, God, we give him everything that we can consciously think. But as we grow in life, there are other things that come in. You see, as you're seeking to give God, when the Holy Spirit comes and says, wait a minute, wait a minute, you, you haven't given that part to God, then our proper response is to say, God, I'm going to stop right now. God, take it. I'm going to take my hands off of it. Because the longer we hang on to it, the more it grows roots, and the bigger it gets, and the bigger uh, hindrance it comes to our worship. There was a time in my life I thought, God, I've given you everything. And I was sitting one day talking to a guy, and we were talking about what do you hope to do in your life? What do you want to be when you grow up, right? What do you want to, what do, you want to do? And I began to lay out, well, I'm doing student work, and I, maybe I'm going to pastor someday, and I want to be at a big church, and, and, and I have this dream that I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to do this. And the Holy Spirit said, wait a minute, Rusty. You had a dream? I thought you went to the altar. I said, oh, but God, you know, these are God-given dreams, right? God said, I may be in them, but they won't be mine until they're mine. Are you willing to say, maybe that won't happen, God. I want to do whatever you want me to do. That was hard. 
And for some of you this morning, that may be where you are. You may be at a place and you can readily identify it. And don't ask the Holy Spirit to show you if you're not willing to sacrifice, okay? Because if you ask Him this morning, God, show me what I haven't put on that altar. He's going to start showing you. And if you're not willing in that moment in your heart to say, God, okay, you're right. Take this. God, instead of rationalizing, instead of making, God, take it. And take your hands off of it. And this week, when it tries to sneak back off the altar, you say, no, it's dead. It's crucified. And as a Christian, personally, as we put ourselves on the altar, we need to let everything we do reflect the idea that I am here to give. I am here to serve. I am here to please a holy God. That's what it means to us personally. What does it mean to us as the church? Well, it means we might need to change our mindset. Might need to change the way we communicate. Instead of going to church to worship, maybe we could come worshiping to church. That as we gather together, we ask ourselves, before we ever come in this place, what can I give today? We ask ourselves, what can I give of myself? And I'm not just talking about money or serving or, or the things that naturally come to mind because there's so much more than that. You see, as we're getting ready in the morning, as you're laying out your clothes, as you're driving in, as you're walking in the door, what would happen if all of us began to come in asking ourselves, who can I bless this morning by giving of myself? We come in and we ask ourselves, who can I encourage? Who can I strengthen? Who can I lift up this morning? God, open my eyes so that I can give of myself as I come into this place, so that as I give of myself, I can give you everything. Can you imagine how different church would be if everyone who was a Christian, who was a follower of Jesus Christ, came together as the corporate body with the one goal mindset of who can I serve? Just listen to me. If you were a believer this morning, no matter what you think, you brought something this morning that is supposed to bless somebody else that's here. It's Pastor, I don't have any talent. I, I can't bring anything. What about a smile? at just the right time? What about a hug? What about stopping and listening to somebody and engaging with somebody? What about making eye contact? What about singing with all of your heart? See, all of those things. I've had people come into my office and say they were blessed in church. People come in, and, and you want people to come into the pastor's office and go, Pastor, your sermon, it changed my life, Right? But they come in and say, Pastor, i got to talk to you. Something happened Sunday. It, it changed my life. It was incredible. And I, I just got to talk to you. And you're like, yes, come on in. So we were sitting there and we were doing that greeting thing. And, and I felt like nobody cared. And I'd had a horrible week. And I was beaten up and beat down. And somebody came over and they gave me a hug. And they whispered in my ear, God loves you. And you and I think, that's not a big deal. It was to them. Because that was exactly what they came needing. And somebody was willing to say, I'm going to give this morning. And you see, by blessing them, by giving of yourself, you'll be amazed at what you receive. You'll be amazed at what God gives you in return. I know we make the excuses, Pastor, I had a bad week. I, I don't feel like it. I'm empty. I can't give this morning. I got nothing left to give. People say, I don't feel like it. Those are the exact moments when you need to give the most. 
You see, when, when you're in greatest need, when you're hurting, when you don't think you have anything to offer, when you think everything else is blackened in a way, that's when God shines the light, when you begin to give of yourself. David wrote this in Psalms 30. You turned my mourning into dancing and you removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. What's he talking about? He's talking about worship. He's talking about what God can do for you when you're willing to give. Can you imagine what would happen in a community where a church's main goal was asking themselves, how can we give of ourselves? How can I bless somebody else? But you see, the problem with it is that it might mean sacrificing your pride. Might mean your time. You won't get out as quick or in as quick or you might not get a seat. Might mean sacrificing your comfort. Might mean you had to die to self. But the good news is all of those things I just mentioned are already on the altar. Right? I had people say, Pastor, I, I just don't like to sing. I can't sing. It's just not who I am. I've never sung. Well, good news. You have a Holy Spirit inside of you that loves to sing praises to God. He loves to worship God. And if you will just get out of the way, maybe on the altar, He'll sing through you. And you might be amazed at what happens. Because didn't Paul also write, for I have been crucified with Christ, and the eye that doesn't like to sing, and the eye that doesn't feel like singing, is now dead. And Christ lives in me. So I used to tell people all the time I'm not a hugger. And I don't like hugging, okay? Don't take offense if I don't come up and give you a big bear hug. But just not, never been a part of, of who I am as an introvert. I don't know if it people space thing or whatever it is. But I've just never been a hugger. And I used, I used to tell God, after church, I'd go in and God would convict me. You didn't hug that one. I said, God, I'm not a hugger. And the Holy Spirit whispered real quietly one Sunday morning, but I am. And you're supposed to be the hands and the arms of Jesus and that person needed a hug. Get out of the way. You see, I, all those things that we use as an excuse, they're gone. You see, we've spent far too long doing anything but worshiping in the church, according to what Paul says in Romans 12. We've made it all about us, what I want, what I like, what I need, what I can get. And when your focus is you, you'll never be happy. There will always be problems. But when your focus is God and meeting the needs of others, there is a power released that the world can't contain. See, we're a family here. Sometimes it's messy. Sometimes we mess up. Sometimes we don't do everything right. Just like your family. But our goal in this place is to worship God in spirit and truth. And my heart and my passion for Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock is that we create an atmosphere in this place where every person here can worship by giving of themselves. Now sometimes that's hard and sometimes it's easy. But what determines whether it's hard or easy in the songs we sing? It's not the time we meet. It's not the instruments we use. It's not the temperature of the room. What determines whether it's hard or easy for us to give of ourselves in worship, corporately and individually, is what we left on that altar. 
That determines whether we worship. If each one of us comes here with a heart of sacrificing, seeking how we can serve, God will move. And you know the most incredible thing about it? People will be drawn to it. You don't have to advertise. You don't have to tell. People will be drawn to it. When we make sacrifice a part of our lifestyle, worship becomes a privilege, and we become the church. That's what God's looking for. That's what Paul's talking about. Let's pray.